From the University of Notre Dame, this is With a Side of Knowledge. I'm your host, Ted Fox. The idea behind this show is pretty simple. A university campus is a destination for all kinds of interesting people, representing all kinds of research specialties and fields of expertise. So why not invite some of these folks out to brunch? Yes, I said brunch, where we'll have an informal conversation about their work, and then I'll turn those brunches into a podcast. It's a tough job, but somebody has to do it. For this episode, I had the opportunity to talk with Sally Benson, a professor of energy resources engineering at Stanford University. The co-director of Stanford's Precourt Institute for Energy, she studies technologies and pathways for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Sally came to Notre Dame to deliver the keynote address for the inaugural ND Energy Research Symposium. Afterwards, she talked to me about how much common ground there is to be found among the scientific community, industry, and all the rest of us when it comes to addressing the challenges posed by our changing climate. So Sally Benson, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. I feel like I'm safe making these assumptions, but please correct me if I'm wrong, that almost universally scientists at this point would say humans burning fossil fuels are contributing to climate change. There might be some disagreement to the extent that humans are contributing to it, but most scientists would say this is fact now. This is not a matter for debate. Would, that, would you say that's correct? I would say that's <laughs> absolutely correct. So we have a public discourse in this country that doesn't always reflect that, where there's skepticism or whatever else. And I'm wondering how you as a scientist approach taking what you do beyond the scientific community. How do you convince people or explain to people that it's in our best interest as a species to try to mitigate what is going on to our our planet based on years and years and years of, of our activity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that, that's really a great question. Um, I guess that I try to find common ground. I try, you know, so I think the common ground is that, you know, energy is very valuable for our lives. It makes it more comfortable, more interesting. Uh, it's very important for the economy. Um, that if you're in a, in a low-income country that doesn't have access to energy, that's a huge disadvantage, and we want to try to help people do that. So, so I, I, I start there. Um, and then the other thing is I know that there's a sort of very visible public discourse that appears that there's this huge polarization. But my experience is when you get people away in a quiet place and you talk about this, you know, it's mostly, well, yeah, we basically agree about these issues. Uh, we might disagree about how fast, how far, who's responsible, how much we're willing to pay. But, you know, you'd be surprised how close we are in the way we view these things. So, so that's what I hear. One of my favorite things to do when I go to a new city, you know, we're often in a taxi or an Uber or a Lyft or whatever. And, uh, you know, I like to talk to them and, and uh, talk with them. 
And uh, I, I always ask, well, what about climate change? You know, since you were a kid, you know, how, how long have you lived here? And, you know, since you were a kid, have you noticed the climate's changed? And almost everybody says, absolutely. You know, it's, it's uh, you know, it's either sort of more extreme events or, or it's just warmer or, oh, we don't have as much snow as we used to have. So people's personal experience in life is consistent with what scientists are observing. Right. I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about, I noticed kind of your two main lines of research in terms of um, carbon dioxide storage as well as modeling and optimizing future energy systems to be more efficient. And if you could just give us a little bit of an overview of those two two lines and how they complement one another. For carbon dioxide capture and storage, the basic idea is right now if we have a factory or if we have a power plant, you know, producing electricity, and if it's, uh, it emits, you know, basically we're burning fossil fuels, and part of the, what comes out of the smokestack, maybe 5 to 15% is carbon dioxide. So instead of just allow, allowing that carbon dioxide to go into the air, we can scrub it, you know, so we can use like chemicals just like we clean up other gases. We can scrub it out, we can compress it, and then we want to make it so it can't go back into the atmosphere. And the very best, safest place with the biggest capacity to do this is actually to put it back underground where the fossil fuels came from. Now, that doesn't mean you put it in exactly the same location, but again, you, you put it back underground. So, so that's the basic idea behind that technology. Uh, it got going in earnest in uh, 1996 in, uh, in Europe, a one project. Now there are about 17 or 18 projects. Uh, so, so it's growing. You know, it's not growing as quickly as we might like it to, uh, but it's growing. Um, and part of the reason it's not is that the capture process, you know, the scrubbing it out of the smokestack, uh, costs, you know, costs money. It costs maybe about $100 a ton of CO2. Okay. And uh, we'd like it to cost maybe $30 or $40. Uh, and, and then it would be easier to do it. And then the, the second part is, is that when we put it underground, we want it to stay there. And um, it takes quite a bit of effort to um, characterize the site to figure out whether it's, it's safe. And uh, so, so there's, there's work to do there. So, so that's sort of what I work on in terms of technology um, and why I picked that. A um, couple, couple reasons. Um, I think it's going to be very hard to uh, stop burning fossil fuels. As a matter of fact, one might argue, well, why should we? You know, that they're, they're a valuable source of energy, most valuable source of energy. If we can find a way to use them without emitting carbon dioxide to the atmosphere, that, that could be hugely beneficial. So it just saw big benefits there. And then the other thing is I personally, my specialty, my scientific specialty is to understanding how uh, fluids move around in, in underground rocks. And so you know, two, two, two important reasons. So that's one thing. But, you know, there's not going to be any one technology that's going to solve this problem. We're going to need a whole bunch of things. We're going to need to, <clears throat> to simply conserve energy, just decide that we'll, we're going to make choices. We'll ride a bike instead of drive a car. We will air condition our house when we are only when we're in the house. And, you know, just think about conservation. We're going to need to be more efficient. We'll need to buy high-efficiency cars, high-efficiency air conditioners, um, have industrial manufacturing that's highly efficient. So we need to do that. 
then we can do things like switching from using coal for electricity to using natural gas. That is like half the carbon. Uh, we can use renewable energy, uh, which has no carbon. Uh, we can electrify our cars. And if we have electric cars and they're running on a, a power grid that has low carbon intensity, uh, that's very beneficial. Uh, we can uh, use carbon capture and storage. We can use nuclear energy. Um, and then there are going to be these things we don't even know what they are yet. So, so the question is, is what's the right mix of those things? You know, should we be, you know, 80% renewable energy and 5% carbon capture and storage? Or should we be 80% carbon capture and storage and 20%? You know, I mean, what, what is the right mix? And it's going to depend on economics. It's going to depend on where you are in the world. Uh, it's going to depend on what resources you have available to you. Uh, other national priorities, national security. I mean, there are going to be a whole bunch of factors. And so the energy systems analysis that I do tries to give us answers to those kind of questions. It's like, what is the blend of all those things that can quickly get us on a decarbonization path and, and then keep us on a path that will make it so that the next reduction that we need it's easy to do. Mm -hmm. So we don't want to run into any dead ends where mm -hmm. we sort of commit ourselves to infrastructure or systems that become inflexible. So a good example would be in Germany. Uh, they basically have like 50% renewable energy and then 50% coal. And they're having a hard time getting unstuck. And, and actually, they haven't been able to reduce their emissions because they shut off their nuclear plants. They don't have much natural gas. So they're kind of stuck, and, and the next thing they need to do is going to be very costly. So I want to try to understand how do we do decarbonization such a way where we don't get stuck? Because we have a long way to go. We have a lot of work to do. So it, it's, I mean, made that clear. It sounds like it's not even a question of will it be there, but should we be walking away from fossil fuels? It sounds like you're saying 50 years from now, 100 years from now, we aren't necessarily saying... We're gonna. We need to abandon fossil fuels altogether. But there's clearly better ways that we could be using them and trying to figure out to what extent we can use them and make them so they're not having the effect that they have been having on our atmosphere. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Like there are certain things like making steel, making cement, uh, making aluminum. You know, there are things that fundamentally. Uh, have carbon emissions associated with them and in some cases because they need fossil fuels in other cases it's just a part of the process like cement and aluminum manufacturing so so we need to figure out you know we're not going to stop using those materials and maybe we'll figure out alternative processes but maybe we don't you know we just don't know and you know flying airplanes how are we going to do that? Running ships, how are we going to do that? So, so yes, I mean, I can see, you know, for a long time, um, you know, needing to keep some fossil fuels in the mix. The other thing is, is what happens when we go for a week or two weeks and there's no wind mm -hmm. and, it's, and it's overcast? Yep. And our solar resource is bad. You know, we're not going to say, well, let's just all take a holiday. No, we're not going to do that. So right. as we decarbonize, we need to maintain the resilience of our energy system. And fossil fuels will probably have an important role to play in that, and especially decarbonized fossil fuels. 
it, I'm glad you brought up kind of that challenge of intermittency of we have wind power, but it's not windy right now because in an upcoming episode, I'll be talking to Hendrik Hamann from IBM Research, who that's part of what he does with big data and trying to make the grid more efficient. And he, he gave me an example of talking about, you know, right now, if it's 2% of the energy is coming from these renewables, we got it covered. But if you're saying, okay, now the grid's going to be powered 20% by these, then that's a bigger question. And I was wondering from your perspective, is that is that the biggest challenge to a bigger deployment of renewable energies? Or are there other challenges that are just as big that we need to figure out in order to get the renewable energy as a larger part of our energy consumption, just in a more in a broader sense as a society. Yeah, yeah. I think that I mean, right now, wind, wind power, and solar PV, you know, electricity, they're actually both really cheap. If you look at something called the levelized cost of electricity, that means how much it costs to produce a kilowatt hour of electricity. It's pretty much the same as natural gas, which is you know mm-hmm. our, our lowest cost source. Um, the real challenge of renewables is how do you integrate them into an electricity grid? So, so our electricity grid is a, mir- a miracle. <laughs> Can you imagine anything where at all times supply and demand has to match each other exactly? exactly right? right. So, so now in the, in the old days, you know, when you had. Um, generation from a coal plant or a gas plant or a nuclear plant, you were completely controlling how much power you were producing. And you'd basically watch what the customers were doing. And the grid operators were fabulous at basically using a system of electronic controls and then picking up the phone and saying, we're going to need you to turn on your generator, you know, an hour from now. And they understood people's consumption and, and they were able to do it. So now what we're saying, well, we want to add renewable generation. And, I mean, everybody knows when the wind is blowing, it doesn't blow perfectly steady, right? It goes up and down and up and down. And and then with the sun, you know, a a bank of clouds can come by. Or uh, you might have half of a day being sunny and half of a day being cloudy. And and so now we have to try to maintain, you know, that same 100%, you know, continual balance but we've got a supply that's varying. So how do we accommodate that? I mean, basically, we have to have another supply that we can turn up and down at, you know, exactly when the other one's fluctuating. So, uh, so that's the challenge. And you can uh, add in storage to the system, you know, battery storage or other forms of storage. That can help some. Uh, you can start controlling demand. So that's there's something called demand-side management that that says, okay, well, I'm a customer, and when there's a little bit of a lag in a supply, well, I'll just cut back my use. Uh, Maybe I can get my refrigerator to do that automatically, Mm -hmm. or maybe I can get my lighting to do that or my air conditioner to do that automatically. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Or maybe if you want a bigger response, maybe you can work with industry to say, well, you know, we'd like you to, you know, make a guarantee that if we need, you know, the power we were selling you, that you'll stop using it, like, within five minutes. So those are the kinds of things that we can do. And and like you said, if it's 2%, no big deal, 10%, 20%, it's not that big of a deal. But you get up in the 30%, 40%, 50%, it starts to be a big deal. 
And that's the experiment, you know, they're doing in Denmark, they're doing in Ireland, we're doing in California, uh, South Australia, you know, we're getting to have higher and higher penetrations of renewables and we're learning how to do it as we go. Um, I would say overall, the experience in California, we have uh, 30% uh, renewables uh, on our grid right now. Um, and it's going really, I, I can't think of a blackout we've had uh, <laughs> due to uh, due to the variability. But it does cost, right? Because it's not just the cost of generation now, right? The, we, we also have to think about how do you deal with these shortfalls. So if you need to buy storage, that costs money. The extra controls you need, they cost money. So, so it's also a matter of cost of how much, how, how expensive will it be to integrate these renewables into the system. You mentioned there a minute ago about partnerships with industry. And I know at Stanford, at the mm-hmm. Precord Institute mm-hmm. for Energy, where you're a co-director, mm-hmm. you all are managing a really new um, initiative, mm-hmm. the Stanford Strategic Energy Alliance, that right. I know is a partnership between faculty at the university mm-hmm. and corporations. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that and what the, what the aim of that partnership is? Is? Sure. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, you know, academic, you know, professors are not going to, you know, go out and run the grid and, and they're not going to, uh, you know, scale up, you know, the next great device. It's really industry who's going to do this. You know, it's going to be industry, policymakers. Uh, it will be our students, you know, because they go out in, into the world. Uh, so, so if the ideas that we're developing are really going to get some traction, uh, we need industry partners who help us understand what are the factors that would make it more or less difficult to implement the kind of ideas. So we really rely on their advice for thinking about, you know, what do we need to fix and as we're improving the technology. Um, and then at the same time, they're learning from us at the very early stages. You know, it's not like they're going to wait until we have something. Oh, here it is. Take it. <laughs> you know, they're watching it as it goes along and they're making internal assessments. Is this a business we could do? And, and if it is and they get excited about it, they'll build their own internal research teams. They'll start scaling it up in their country company. And, uh, and at some point, you know, it'll be ready to go. So it's that close partnership because throwing things over the wall or, you know, dangling them, you know, in, through journal articles just doesn't work. So, right. so our goal is really to accelerate the uptake of, of innovation mm-hmm. so that it could become deployed more quickly. I, I like that you mentioned the role of industry there. I'm, I'm shuffling through my notes here because I, there was a, a quote that you had in announcing the Stanford Strategic Energy Alliance that it stood out to me. You said, throughout human history, fundamental changes in the way we use energy have unleashed the next level of society's growth. Born of necessity and opportunity now is one of those moments. And it struck me because... I think much of the time when we talk about renewable energy and we talk about decarbonization, all these all these things, we talk with good reason about the impact on the planet and what's going on with our planet and being a good steward of our planet. But as you alluded to in what you said there, there's also tremendous economic upside there mm-hmm. and the potential to create new kinds of opportunities that maybe not only corporations, but workers maybe haven't had before in these new industries. Can you talk a little bit about those, about what some of those, I I don't want to call them real world opportunities, but I can see how sometimes people say, well, that's that's great. You want to protect the planet, but what's it going to mean for people's jobs and how companies are going to function? Right. Yeah. Well, maybe I can start with sort of my 
you know, a topic I'm most passionate about. If you look at um, low-income countries, if you look at middle-income countries, particularly rural populations, they don't have electricity, and and they they haven't, or and they, or if they do, it's it's often highly unreliable, and it's not sufficiently good that they can start using uh, energy to make productive products to grow industry. So, so the opportunities for off-grid electrification um, in many parts, you know, right now there's a, like 1.1 billion people who have no access to electricity all. It's huge, right? You know, that's three times as many people as live in the United States have no access. Uh, about another billion the quality is is, uh, is so poor or it's simply unaffordable. So it's a good fraction of the people on the planet. So I think that's where the, a huge opportunity will come in. So, so I like that one a lot. Um, I think another area is in uh, information technology. So, so if we look so far at the way our electricity system is run, uh, it's remarkably simple. Uh, you, know, you produce power, you have a bunch of lines, and it's almost like water flows down a hill. Well, you know, that, the, the power system, that's like the power systems people will be like wanting to shoot me right now. <laughs> but, but sort of the basic physics, it, you know, it just it flows from where you have high voltage to low voltage. And, and uh, I think we're good. Did you want to order anything? I for don't know. The ice is perfect. I will, I will look at the dessert menu for sure. Thank you. <laughs> I'm away from my two toddlers at the moment, so I have to live it up a little bit. So there's a huge opportunity to incorporate uh, electronics into our electricity system to make it operate much more flexibly uh, so we can do all this demand-side management. So so we, we no longer are trying to operate a system where we at all times meet, you know, provide all the supply we need that both are fluctuating. I think for entrepreneurs, uh, that's an enormous opportunity. Um, and because the IT sector has not real, I mean, the IT sector has transformed everything they've touched, right? Well, they haven't really touched electricity. So, so I think there's a huge opportunity there. I think there is a huge opportunity in vehicle electrification, uh, entrepreneurial opportunities and infrastructure, charging infrastructure, uh, using our cars as like like little mini power plants that when they're plugged into the grid, not only can they take power, but they can give power back so they can help manage the variability of the grid. I think that uh, imagining transportation in a different way where we have uh, electrified, autonomous, uh, shared uh, transportation infrastructure could be really transformational. And people imagine, like, wake up in the morning, go to your iPhone and say, pick me up at 8. This is this autonomous car. Uh, You walk out the door. It's there. Two of your neighbors are in the car, too. You get to drive to work, chat to your neighbors, you know, go work all day. Uh, your kid needs to go from uh, school to your sister's house. Uh, the car picks them up. And, and so you can just imagine a world where shared uh, infrastructure is, the quality is better, it's more convenient, it costs less. So I think there's huge opportunity there. Uh, those are some I, some I like, yeah. You're talking about technology there, and one I loved when I was when I was looking 
at your work. I saw one of your colleagues, who I think is a postdoc at Stanford now, though, was doing something where could potentially pave the way for these air conditioners with something called radiative heating, where yeah. it shoots the literally the air conditioner unit, if it's a right. clear day, can shoot the heat into mm-hmm. outer space, which I thought was really cool and something just from the outside you would never think, like, oh, I, I bet we could do something like that. And I was wondering if there's any other technologies that you've come across either in your own work or just in your in your own reading that you look at and say it's just, it's just kind of cool that th- these are things that were because cons- I think a lot of we think about electric cars which are which are neat mm-hmm. and but it seems like there's some really innovative ideas out there that maybe the general public we wouldn't always be aware of right yeah well I'll, I'll use one it's it's not like a super glamorous example but but it could have a huge impact so right now most of us or many of us use uh, natural gas for heating so uh, so that has you know is a lot of carbon associated with it actually for for most household that's actually the bigger source of the carbon emissions compared to electricity and we focus so much on electricity but really it's heating uh, so and there haven't been a lot of ideas uh, so it turns out that you can uh, electrify heating, and, uh, and and you can imagine a system where neighborhoods have a district heating system, and if you looked from household to household, you might very well find that one house is heating and one house is cooling, and they're doing it simultaneously, and if you could exchange the if you could take the heat out of the house and put it into the cold, and you know, if you can heat exchange, you can make more cold and more hot. And by doing that efficient heat exchange, you can reduce your energy demand. So we've done this at Stanford. We've reduced our energy demand by 70%. percent by How much? Sem- 70 Se- Wow. Huge, right? That is yeah, huge, it, yeah. It's absolutely yeah. huge. And then you make big tanks. You have a hot tank, and then you have a cold tank. And so, so you can, if you have too much, you know, hot at one time, you can store it and you can use it at night. If you have too much cold at one point, you can save it and use it the next day. And so you can have a very efficient all-electric heating system uh, district-wide. And, and again, they're inexpensive because you're using so much less energy. And they're much less polluting because they don't use carbon. We at Notre Dame have... Um install geothermal wells to help with heating and cooling of buildings. And every time I go to understand how a geothermal well works, I get about two paragraphs into the explanation, and I feel like my eyes start to glaze over a little bit. So I'm wondering if you can give me the Cliff's Notes version of how a geothermal well uh-huh. works. So, so geothermal yeah. systems can work in different ways. The simplest model is, is that you drill a well underground, and if you go deep enough, the water is fairly warm. Mm-hmm. And you can just take that warm water and you can um, basically use it to preheat water that you would otherwise, you know, put in a boiler. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you can take that water directly and run it through pipes for, for a heating system. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's that's the simplest okay. one. Okay, so then the next kind is something called a heat pump. Okay, so, and the way a heat pump works is is that you have something that's cold, uh, typically, uh, typically the air or the, the, the air in a building, uh, and then you have this warm water. So you have a temperature difference between the hot from geothermal and the cold. Uh, and then if you run a compressor, you can basically take uh, heat from the, from the colder air and add it to, to the hot water. Mm-hmm. 
And so you make the hot hotter and the cold colder. Okay. Okay, so that's basically the idea behind a heat pump, and mm -hmm. sometimes they're called uh, uh, heat recovery uh, uh, heat recovery chillers. And so, again, you just take a temperature difference, you add electricity, and you make the hot hotter and you make the cold colder. And now you've got your two sources mm -hmm. of cooling and heating simultaneously produced from the same energy source. Right. So it's super efficient. Okay. That makes more sense. Yeah. I know that you were on that um, task force for the former Secretary of Energy um, looking basically at kind of strategies for how we deal with climate change and, and things like that. And I also saw that you had a letter with your co-director at the Precord Institute talking about this idea that in order to solve or address a problem like climate change, we really need to embrace innovative solutions and embrace a culture where it's okay to fail because we have to kind of think big. And is that when we're talking about what sounds like an energy future where it will have a lot more strategies and a lot more sources of providing energy than we have today. Is that central to being able to realize that future? Because it sounds like we need to be a lot more creative than we have been in terms of how we think about tackling how we supply the world's energy needs. Yeah, you know, I think that's just right. I mean, the energy system is huge, right? It's about 10% of the global economy is basically tied up in our energy system. And the infrastructure that goes in, I mean, th this is a true story. So, like, the, the when you produce uh, oil up in Canada from the oil sands there, uh, it's only about one week later that it's traveled from Canada down through the United States, ends up in the Gulf Coast, goes through numerous chemical processing steps, and becomes the gasoline you put in your car. I mean, that is incredibly complex. All of those steps, and you know, and, and there's just this gigantic, you know, really machine that's producing in the power, and and the electric grid has, you know, been called the most important technological innovation. And so people who are engaged in this realize how hard it is and how complex it is to keep this thing running the way it is. And so when things are that complex and that big, we tend to think, oh my gosh, it can only change super slowly and, and you know, it's hard to imagine adding renewable energy because it's variable and, you know, intermittent and all of that. So, so the point of that article was is that if we keep thinking that way, we're not going to innovate. So, so sometimes people might not get it all right. You know, there's a lot of discussion about 100% renewables today, and you know, as an aspiration. And you know, you can look at that and say, well, that's absolutely crazy. But you can look at that and also say, well, directionally, that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. You know, it's nice to know that somebody's dreaming of that. Mm -hmm. So embracing innovation is is looking across the full spectrum and, and wisely making choices about the direction, the pace, and options that we choose to pursue. Okay. If we're going to decarbonize as quickly as we need to, we need to have every single sector of the energy system contribute the way it can. And to say to certain uh, you know, aspects, so, oh, no nuclear, no fossil fuels, no carbon capture and storage. You know, what we're doing is we're saying, okay, well, you know, 80% of you, that this is what you work on today, well, we're not looking for your help. You know, I just can't think of anything more ridiculous than doing that. Right. Sally Benson, this has been a pleasure, and thank you for 
explaining all kinds of things to us. I appreciate you making time for the show. Well, happy to be here. Thank, Thank you. you. With a Side of Knowledge is a production of the Office of the Provost at the University of Notre Dame. For more, visit provost.nd.edu slash podcast.